Let's get to God's word today. We're in John chapter 14. And this chapter of the Bible is where our church name comes from. You didn't know that. Okay? So you're going to find out why are we called the Way Church. What is that all about? Let's read beginning in verse 1. And this is Jesus speaking with his disciples. Leading right up to the crucifixion. Speaking toward the end of the story of Jesus' life and ministry. And there's something exciting and big about to come. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That theme of being troubled has already come up in John. Go back to chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus himself says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Again, in chapter 13, Jesus, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. This is verse 21 of chapter 13. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. That's the, the chapter that we covered last week. So here in the midst of Jesus, knowing what's about to come, knowing that the next journey for him is not a journey to go perform a miraculous healing to break loaves and fish and feed the, the, the multitudes. It's not to turn water into wine. It's not a, a, you know, to increase his popularity there in, in uh, the region of Jerusalem. The next journey for him is the road to Golgotha. It involves a cross. It involves suffering and paying the ultimate sacrifice, all for the glory of God. And with that in mind, Jesus' soul is troubled. And yet here he's talking to his disciples and telling them, don't be troubled. You know, really, they, it should have been reversed, right? His disciples, if they knew what was to come, would be the ones comforting him and encouraging him not to be troubled and giving the encouragement that he needed as he faces this passion week. And yet he's selfless and other-focused to the end. And so he's bringing encouragement to his disciples, not just there in the room, but disciples here in this room as well. Is there anyone in this room that's faced anything troubling in your life personally in the week we just come through? Is there any single, there's one person. And then now the rest of us as well are courageous and honest. So when your heart is troubled, and when you have the inevitable challenges and struggles and pains of this life, what's the key, what's the solution, what's the recipe to finding peace in the midst of life's storms? Jesus says at the end of verse 1, Believe in God, and believe also in me. When your trust is in Him, it puts this worldly concerns into their proper perspective. we got a couple of ladies from our church that are, are struggling and hurting this morning. Um, Christina Brady and my daughter Abigail, who's working in kids ministry, um, have had a, a client that they've worked with um, for, for for Christina for quite a while, for Abigail just for the past couple months. Um, but their client Shelly was actually here visiting our church service in July. Some of you may have gotten to meet her. Um, she's a, a lady in her 40s that was injured in, a, in an accident in her late teen years, and so she's been in a, a wheelchair ever since then. Paralyzed from the neck down. And so Christina and Abigail were among some of the Christian ladies that would do the overnight shifts of helping care for her in her home. And she had a, a her health took a turn last week. Abigail was on that shift when they took her down to Parker to the hospital there. And then um, 
Shelby had heard that our daughter, Avi, is a prayer warrior, and so she asked if Avi would come and pray for her at the hospital, so they got to go and, and pray for her there. And then this week, uh, you know, I, I talked to Christina for, for her, her side of it. I know more from hearing from Abigail. But she had another time with, with Shelly on Thursday night, and it was a lot of pain and, and, and suffering. Uh, asking Abigail, you know, can you just hug me? Can you just comfort me? And then she passed away just last night at 8 p.m. And so one of the things that Abigail shared, because she was a believer, you know, God used that painful trauma in her life, the accident, to bring her to him. And after the accident, and after the paralysis, she wanted her life to end. There really had no way to, to take her own life at that point. And, and yet in that lowest, darkest, deepest point of the spirit, God reached out to her. And that was her first encounter of him. And then she told Abigail as they would talk uh, during the times when she was uh, spending evenings with her, she talked about looking forward to heaven when she could get rid of this body that didn't work and she could dance in the Lord's presence. And that was her hope. And so, you know, I look at I look at Shelly and inspiration, the gift that she was to my daughter, for a 19-year-old to hear the wisdom of a woman who suffered in this way for almost 30 years, and to say, you know, my faith is in him, my hope is in God, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, this is how I handle the troubles in my life, and I couldn't ask for a better gift as a dad. And you can sit through a lot of sermons here and a, a preacher try to unpack a verse, but when you're right up against some pain like that and you're seeing faith and hope in the midst of the storm, it drives that message home better than I ever could. And so today, you know, let's pause and pray for Shelly's family. They're, they're uh, in the midst of this right now. I know there's some family members that need to know the Lord as well. God, we thank you for the life of Shelly. We thank you for your grace and your hope to her in the midst of the pain of this life. We thank you for even using pain to bring her to yourself. And Lord, we mostly celebrate today that she's no longer suffering. She's no longer uh, inhibited, limited. She's able to freely enjoy your presence. We thank you for her faith that's rippled out to affect some members of our congregation and all of us as we contemplate her story today. And we respond with obedience to your instruction to believe in God and believe in you, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, that was just one verse. Okay. Verse two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. Heaven has plenty of room, okay? They're not going to run out of space. All of Jesus' followers can be accommodated in the place that Jesus is preparing. When you put this verse in the context of the broader New Testament description of what awaits us in the future... You have to read John's other writings as well. John, or Revelation 21 gives us a, a, an ultimate end times view on the reality. It's not just floating up to this place that he's preparing somewhere on a cloud where you can play a harp and have a halo over your head. Right? The ultimate story in Revelation 21 talks about a new heaven and a new earth. It talks about the place where God dwells now coming to inhabit the good earth that he's made. And there's continuity from the story, Genesis 1, when he says, on each step of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. Humans, it is very good. 
That same thing continues all the way through the end of your Bible. When I, when I read this and, and look at what John is saying, I don't think he's saying that our future hope is an otherworldly, non-physical, immaterial existence where we're kind of spirit beings uh, like the cherubs in, in uh, you know that, that we saw last week at the uh, Monica help me. What was the art exhibit that we that I saw? The Sistine Chapel exhibit, right? Okay, Michelangelo's depictions there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know Michelangelo. I don't know if you read the end of, of the of the story here when there is a redemption that affects this entire earth, the new earth in God's presence. This place that Jesus is preparing. Uh, is bigger than just a future disembodied heavenly existence. And so I think I think it's okay to look forward to heaven. But there's also life after life after death. Okay? Life after death is heaven. Life after that is when the king returns and when the king makes his dwelling here. And so contemplate that, read it, read the rest of your New Testament and see those themes emerging. Jesus in this chapter is going to talk about his return. And so he's going to prepare a place. And then in verse 3, he says it right there. If I go, I will come again. Jesus is coming back. Live in light of the reality that Jesus is returning. Does that occupy your thinking on a day-to-day basis? Are you thinking about the car that's got some mechanical problems? The mortgage payment? That's coming up once again at the first of the month. The tr- troubles in your family, the kids that you're struggling with knowing how to raise, and all those very legitimate concerns. In the midst of that, are you thinking about, pondering, looking forward to reflecting on the soon coming return of Jesus? He says, If I go, I will come again. What would happen if every day you got up and you prayed first thing, Lord, I look forward to your return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that then framed and shaped the way that you look at the whole entire day. What would happen if as you crawled into bed at night, you put your head on the pillow, if you said, Lord, thank you for bringing me through another day. Will you please come back tomorrow? I can't wait for your return. And have that anticipation and begin to have that flavor, your conversations with the people that you meet. Would it change the way that you talk to people that you encounter if you thought daily about the return of Jesus? Because there's people that need to know him, and the time is short. And Thomas, hearing this, and this discussion about, you know the way to where I am going. He's got some pushback. Verse 5. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus had said prior to this pushback from Thomas, you know the way, and now he says, oh, and by the way, I am the way. You know the way. You're looking at him, Thomas, disciples, you know the way. He's standing in front of you. There is one way. And his name is Jesus. Now, that's not a popular message in today's pluralistic culture, right? Like in American culture, not a very popular message because it's very exclusive. It's very narrow-minded. You know, it doesn't put a lot of value on 
you know, whatever way that you, whatever path you choose. Now, a, more, a much more popular message would be to say there's many paths to God. You know, what's right for you may not be right for me. That's not what Jesus says, however. He, he's got a very exclusive, unpopular message that causes uh, people to label Christians who adhere to this teaching as being bigoted, narrow-minded, definitely not woke. <laughs> the young people get that. They know what they are. That's a new word. I'm just trying it out. I think, I think what they mean is awakened, but they just, you know, kind of <laughs> But Jesus is saying there's only one way. Now, now let, let, me, let me share with you some wisdom that our brother uh, from Asia, our ministry partner that preached here, whose name I can't mention because it's being recorded, um, and he works in a difficult part of the world, right? But he, he shared the evangelism training class with a group of us on Wednesday night. He had a great insight when it comes to presenting the gospel. Normally, we show up with a shovel trying to transplant a tree into a person's heart, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to start digging in there because there's a big root ball on this thing. i got to get into your heart. And you need to know about the Trinity. You need to know about um, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. You need the entire backstory of all the Jewish scriptures. Uh, you need a full comprehension of big words like eschatology, soteriology, pneumatology, and some other analogies. And then maybe once we get through all of that material, you'll have enough understanding of the gospel that this thing will take root in your heart. And he said, actually, a better strategy and a more biblical strategy would forget about the shovel, plant a seed in a person's heart. Have a gospel seed. Have a simple way that you can present the gospel, and don't allow yourself to get dragged into those tree conversations that are way more fun to talk about, and those are the ones that people immediately start asking you questions about. Disregarding, oh, that's a great question. Let me get back to the seed that I'm planting in your heart, and let me give you the gospel seed here from the verses that we just read. Here's, here's the, the gospel seed for our church to plant in hearts. Jesus is the way. It, it should be pretty easy to remember because it's on the front of our bulletin. It's in our logo. You know, and when people try to get you distracted, oh, oh, oh Jesus is away. Well, you know, but how can he be the son of God and Mary's his mom? That's a great question. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. People try a lot of different paths. He's the one way. And you can try a lot of other uh, avenues, a lot of other paths, a lot of other directions in your life to try to fill the hole that you've got, to try to make sense and meaning of this life, to try to answer the questions you have, you're going to come up short time and again. Jesus is the way. How many of you think you could share a simple gospel message like that with just about anybody you need? Okay? Start there and let God be the one that sends the roots out, a sprout, some leaves, fruit. There will be time to grow and to learn all those other tree-shaped things and and get into some theological discussion down the road. But let's have that simple gospel presentation that is effective and that God can work with. And maybe it's not as intimidating to us, right, to begin with something that we can feel confident. I, I can share that. I can tell somebody that this week. Jesus is coming again. And then Philip says, 
Okay. Well, Thomas had some pushback. I've got a question. You, you said, Jesus, from now on, you do know him and have seen him, referring to the Father. Well, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. You know the way, I am the way. And now Jesus goes on to answer Philip's questions. And he says, really, Philip, to see Jesus is to see the Father. We're getting, this is a great chapter when questions about Trinity come up. Another good one is the baptism of Jesus story when you got Jesus being baptized, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and the Spirit of God descending like a dove. If you want to preserve the mystery and the truth of the Trinity, that's a good story where you're seeing the three persons of God united. We're hearing more of this unpacked here in John 14. As Jesus is not saying, I am the Father. You know, it's just one person. Or, I used to be the Father, now I'm here as Jesus. And phase three will be next when I'm the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is saying. But there is this, uh, you know, if, if you want, if you like big 50-cent theology words, it's perichoresis. Right? Yeah, you worked that one into a sentence this week. And that's, it. that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He's going into a discussion of love is the next place that he's going. And really, it answers the question that you may have wondered. Why did God create? You know, did he need to? Was it that God was, was bored and lonely? And he said, well, I'm going to create a good world, and I'm going to create humans in my image, because I've got this longing and this need. No, that doesn't fit with what we know of God's heart and his character, right? So God is totally sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need glory or worship. He's already glorious whether or not anyone is ascribing glory to him. So that's not a, a satisfying answer to the question of why did God create? John 14 gives us some clues as to why God creates it's because of an overflow of love. What is love? It's, it's not warm, goose feelings like you get from watching a Hallmark movie. Love is when you say, I put you first. And that'd be a good practice as parents to teach that to your kids because someday they're going to grow up and your daughters are going to hear a young man say, I love you. And he's actually saying, I want something from you. But if you train them and prepare them, then whenever you say, I love you, you're saying, I put you first. They're going to detect that that's actually not love that that young man is saying. It may even happen to some of your, your boys. There may be a girl who uses that manipulatively as well. But when Jesus says, I love you, he's saying, I put you first. I lay my life down for you. I offer myself sacrificially for you. I come in obedience to the Father. I come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. And here we, we're, gonna, we're going to see as Jesus continues his discussion that love is the foundation of creation. It's the reason that God creates. There's then the love 
that has existed since before the dawn of time between the Father and the Son. And that unity, that knot that ties it together is God's Spirit. The three in one, three distinct persons, one nature. Still mysterious, right? I don't have a, a nice tight analogy that will make it really clear for you. We've been struggling with this forever. And yet Jesus is saying to his disciples, you know, you want to see the Father? Take a look at me. You want to see the heart of God? I'm here to show you the Father. And really, there's, there's themes here of what we prayed about earlier with, with Ryan. All glory, all authority is God's. It belongs to the Father, and God is at work. Then, then Jesus makes it even more personal for his disciples, including us in this room. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I hope you get excited about that verse. Think about the things that Jesus did, the works, right? Okay, you can't just um, make this hyperbole a metaphor. And say, so let's disregard all the miracles that we've read thus far in John. And let's say this only applies to a work of redemption, uh, you know, bringing hope, bringing peace to lives. Let's, let's uh, disregard the fact that he turned water to wine, that he fed the 5,000, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. There's actual miracles in this book that we've been reading, okay? So uh, I don't think you can dismiss that as metaphor and say, well, the works don't include miracles. I also don't think that it logically makes sense to go, well, those things that Jesus did were somewhat cool. We're going to do even cooler things. Like just raising one dead guy, that's not going to raise even more. I mean, how can you get any cooler than feeding 5,000 people from the lunch of a little boy? How can you get any bigger or greater than raising a person from the dead? Like, that's pretty much the pinnacle of great works, right? And then he says you will do greater works than these. Well, what if it just means, because there's more of us, we'll be doing the same kinds of miracles, but the sum total of all the Christians on the planet throughout all the generations will be more than what Jesus could accomplish. I also find that a very compelling perspective. I think the real key here is the entire thrust of this story. Resurrection. You know, we've seen time and again where the, the characters, in, right in the midst of the miracles, didn't understand the significance of the miracles. And they were great works, and yet really not so much for the people experiencing them. The ones that actually ate the fish and the bread that day, many of them, their eyes were not open to see Jesus as he is. And they just showed up the next day with a handout, going, hey, can we get another free meal? Is the party still rolling today? Or is there a different buffet i got to go seek out? And so for them, really, the miracles were not great until after the resurrection. That's when all of a sudden everyone began to reinterpret and rethink through exactly what had Jesus done and exactly what had Jesus said now in light of the resurrection. When we carry out the works that Jesus did, they have an even greater impact than they did when Jesus did them because he is now risen. And when God works through you to 
do a miracle, to, you know, when he glorifies himself, uh, advances his own glory and authority, it's something that you do in some small way, like praying for healing. Or seeing God miraculously work in someone's life or provide. That is much easier to connect for you and I today because Jesus is risen. And we can point to our risen Savior and carry on that work because he has gone to the Father. It's less likely, you know, today that those miracles will result in the kind of fickle faith that we see for some of the characters, although that does still happen. People pursuing the hand of God rather than his heart. And so we need that, that same caution as the as the uh, members of the, the characters in the story here that we've been reading in John's Gospel. Jesus, now, uh, so, so if you're not convinced that God has created you to know him personally, then you need a reminder like Thomas and Philip had here. Jesus says, if you see me, if you know me, you know the way to God. You know the one and only way. You know this simple seed of truth that you need to know in order to experience the Father. To see me is to see the Father. He's created you and I, each one of us, to know him personally for an intimate love relationship with him. Not just a fearful, obedient relationship. Not a detached, but you're, you're technically the creator, but now I'm a long ways away from you. But right up against our story, he knows you, he knows your heart, each one of you, and he loves you. I hope you got a hold of that today. I hope it gives you joy, and it helps you to weather the storms of this life. Believe in God, believe in me, Jesus says. Now we talked about what does that love look like? How does this affect us? This is the end of the chapter, so let's read in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Probably also not another super popular verse, right? Like, I haven't seen this on a bumper sticker. We don't like the idea of commandments. It seems like a disconnect from love, right? Like, we would go, well, if you love me, you wouldn't give me commandments. You let me do whatever I want to do, right? Because we're like children at times. And yet, if God is all if all glory and all authority belongs to him, if he is the creator of all things, doesn't the designer and the creator know the best way for human flourishing? And isn't it an arrogant for us to believe that we can inform him, notify him the way that our lives should go, and then kind of ask him to come alongside and baptize that and bless it with his little, you know, miraculous touch. But no, this is a much more humble posture. It's saying there's a connection between love and obedience. And I think oftentimes Christians struggle with this idea, like we either want to have faith or we want to have obedience. Obedience ends up tipping off on the side of my works, my actions, right? Like, you know, I'm going to earn my way to God. I'm going to try really hard. And at the end of my life, God's going to look at me and go, that boy, you did it. You have earned salvation. Nice work. You know, you almost, you almost made it. You would have just done your devotions one more day. You could have made it in, but sorry. Okay, so the obedience thing ends up tipping over toward the faith side. There's again, there's some truth over on the obedience side, right? The faith side has some truth as well. It's not about works. Let's reject that idea. 
Let's remember that it's Jesus' finished work on the cross that secures our salvation. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, your works are the way. Right? So we get excited about the faith, which you should, and yet sometimes it's to the rejection of the works. Right? And so Jesus is saying there is a connection between if you love me, if you believe in me, he, he said earlier in this chapter, and the obedience that flows from that. It's not the obedience as the basis of your salvation, but it's obedience as a natural outflow of that. So what I would encourage you to strive for is to have an obedient faith. Keep those two together. Don't rip them apart. Don't let somebody separate those that obedience is on one side, faith is on the other. Keep the obedience and the faith together. That's how we express our love to him. If that seems hard, that's something that you feel like, I, I don't even know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm strong enough. I don't know if I have the willpower. I've fallen on my face too many times in the past. And the preacher's giving me another dope trip on a Sunday morning. I've got some good news for you from Jesus' own mouth. Verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That word helper, it's hard to translate. Okay? In, in Greek, it's paraclete. Okay? And uh, it, it has some, uh, in secular writings, not in the Bible, it would be an advocate, like a legal advocate. Uh, I would say a great, if you want to do a paraphrase, a good way to capture the meaning of this word would be a right-hand man. You know what that means, right? That's somebody who's right with you, helping you, and, and strong, right? Sometimes the word helper may have a little bit of a subordinate idea to it, right? Like, you're in charge, but you get this little helper, this underling that's kind of coming up. Well, that's definitely not what the Holy Spirit's role is in our lives. Not that we're in charge and we've got a helper that kind of, you know, assists us in our mission and our goals. That's not the role of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's as an advocate, as a comforter, as someone who is adequate and alongside us, who's able to do the work that is that Jesus is calling us to as an expression of our love to obey the commands. If you can't do that in your own strength, it's okay. Jesus has made provision, and you're right, you can't obey his commands in your own strength. He not only makes it possible for you to find the way to God and take that path, but then he also enables you to walk that path. He gives you the strength that you need. It's not your strength that got you salvation, and it's not your strength that carries out that work of sanctification. Jesus does it all, and he provides his Holy Spirit to give you the strength you need. He says it uh, once again in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I hope you're not going through your day-to-day -day Christian walk thinking that it's, it's all you and you're all alone. Remember, he's given you his Holy Spirit to dwell with you and to live in you. And that should give you the confidence to get up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to walk with Jesus today. I'm going to show my love for him by obeying his commandments because he is empowering me and enabling me to do so. And at the end of 2019, people are going to look at me and go, you know, you look a little bit more like Jesus than you did on New Year's Day. 
And Jesus is coming back. He's not going to leave us abandoned. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. There's that resurrection hint. The disciples are still hearing this and not seeing what he's talking about. But there is, there is death coming, but there's victory coming. And there's life coming. And because of his resurrection reality, we have the ability to walk in newness of life. Risen, no longer slaves to sin, no longer dead in our transgressions, but alive to God, walking with him. Resurrection, Jesus is saying, is going to validate my words and deeds. And we're going to see that in the Gospels. It's, there's this dumbfounded shock in the Gospels when Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, there's no, none of the Gospel writers, none of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like just putting all kinds of flowery Old Testament quotations. And this, you know, his resurrection was to fulfill what was spoken in the prophets in this book. They're just, there's this stark, dumbfounded proclamation of the risen Savior. Like, we have no way of processing what just happened, but he is alive. He's risen from the dead. And it it opens their eyes to see what the miracles meant, to hear what the words and the teaching meant. Resurrection changes everything. And because he lives, you and I will live as well. Our eternal life hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, on his finished work. You have the opportunity to live the abundant life today and eternal life with God forever because of Jesus finished work on the cross, which includes his life, his death, and his resurrection. And that being raised to life is what gives us the ability to really live as well. In that day, verse 20, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So this is building on the theme that we've seen earlier, where Jesus says, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Now you and I are included in that love relationship, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he ties it all together in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How many of you think that sounds like a good thing, having Jesus manifest himself to you, show himself to you. Does that sound good? Does it sound good to participate in the love that God has? Right? I mean, I hope you don't get hung up on the commandment part of this and miss the love aspects that you were created to know God personally. Jesus makes that possible. Obeying the commands is an expression of that love. And it's actually fun once you do it. Right? It's actually not fun doing things your way. Um, think about the, the, the child who gets the bag of candy on Halloween. You know, for that child, they're thinking, what would bring me joy is to sit down and eat this entire, you know, hollowed-out jack-o'-lantern plastic container of candy in one sitting. This is going to bring me satisfaction and joy. The parent who knows better is thinking, you know, A, you're going to develop diabetes in one sitting. And B, it's going to rot all your teeth out. C, 
you're probably going to be hunched over the porcelain throne shortly thereafter, right? And so you and I know because we probably made that same mistake at some point in our childhood. We've got some wisdom to offer. How much more the perspective of our Heavenly Father who created all things? And he looks at the things that we think would bring satisfaction and joy. And he's got such a, an eternal perspective on our lives and our reality. And he's given some commandments. Not because he's got some, he's on some power trip. The power he has is legitimate power and authority. And he's looking at you and I and saying, I know what's best for you. And I'm going to give you some commandments that have your flourishing in mind and my greater glory in mind. And as you walk in these ways, you're going to experience my love. And at the end of the day, you're going to really taste the abundant life that I have planned for you. And yet we're like kids. So I think, I think my plan's better. But as we learn to humble ourselves, to submit to him, to have that childlike faith, and we come to his commandments and go, Lord, I don't understand, but I will obey. I don't understand, but I do love you. I don't understand, but I do trust you. I receive the help that you offer to me by your Holy Spirit to walk in your commands, to experience your love and express my love to you through my obedience. And Judas, now different Judas, not Judas Iscariot, verse 22, not the one who will betray Jesus, the other Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How's that going to happen? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Uh, one further requirement, okay? So if you're gonna if you're gonna express love for God, you keep the commandments that Jesus gives. How do you know the commandments that Jesus gives? Jesus unpacks it for Judas. You need to hear his word. You need to hear his word in order to understand his words, which are commandments that have love in mind. And if you're to experience that love and obey those commandments, you need to hear his words. Now, let me just make it real clear. God, Jesus is calling us to be in his word and have his word in us. There's a lot of good things that we know we should be doing, and we just don't get around to it. Uh, my kids were at their grandparents' house in Missouri, and they came back with one of these, I should have brought it today to show you. Have you ever seen, it's, it's a wooden round, you know, like a, coin, a, a wooden coin, and on the one side it says T-U-I-T. You seen this? It's a round to it. So that's been going around our house, you know. Is there anything you've been procrastinating on? Yeah, I gotta clean my room up here and I gotta round to it. And get around to it. And so there's things in our lives, right, that we're we're just yeah, I need to I need to start hitting the gym. I need to get back on that diet. I need to get better organized. I need to declutter. Well, well, how do you begin to make progress in any area like that? You know, we need to start getting back to doing our our, our husband and wife date night once a week. What are those, those really good goals that you, you know would be beneficial, and yet uh, it's easy to just kind of not get around to today, 
or tomorrow, and then we really start reflecting on it, it's been like eight years that you've been in the same pattern of the thing that you have been, you know, intending to get around to soon. The problem is you can't recoup those lost days and weeks and months, right? And there's some things that really, you know, like your health, it's the sum total of a lifetime of those little daily decisions. Your relationship with your spouse, you know, yes, you can do something today that will fix it, but you can't really recoup those years of missed opportunity to invest and to spend time raising your children. And we just had one get married off. Those books that I wish I would have read her more of when she was a little girl, I can't go back and do that now. It's gone. Right? And I'm not saying this to discourage you, to deflate you, but to just spur you on to love and good deeds and give you a little poke in the ribs today and say, if you want to show your love for God by obeying his commandments, what's holding you back? What are you waiting for? What's preventing you from spending some quiet time in his word this week? It's the consistency, the daily bread that will feed you and nourish you and get you to that place where you understand his commandments so you can live them out so you can experience the abundant life that he intends for you, so you can experience his love and reflect his love to others around you, so you can look more like Jesus at the end of the year. And so whatever uh, method, technique that you need to, to get that little bit of, of extra momentum, and remember you've got the Holy Spirit available to you as an advocate and helper, a right-hand man that's saying, I'm going to help you in this process. I'm not just barking some orders. I'm right next to you to enable you to walk with Jesus and to follow after him. Get into his word. Open consistently. This is something we do in community with one another. It's not just a you and Jesus endeavor. There is a community of believers that God has placed you in. What would be so bad about partnering up with someone and saying, hey, can we pester each other? once a day, and, and read a book of the Bible together. Students are going through uh, the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings in fire. Uh, there's a, an adult Bible study going through the book of Luke. We're doing John as a, as a church. There's three options that you could do with someone else from church, a spouse, a friend, a classmate, and say, okay, let's just read a chapter a day, and then we'll send a little text or something like that, you know, what did you think was the key thought? And do this in partnership with somebody else. Um, I encourage you, a real simple, quiet time format is uh, what we try to do at Men's Coffee on Wednesday mornings. We do SOAP, S-O-A-P. Scripture, observations, application, prayer. So scripture means you actually read it. Observe. What are some things you notice in there? What are some questions you have? How does it fit within the, the, uh, the surrounding context? What do you observe? Application, what do you do about it? Right? How do we not just be hearers of the word, but doers? And then P is pray. I'd say, I'd say put a P at the beginning to make a P something. Okay? <laughs> Begin with prayer and say, God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is here. As I open your word, speak to my heart. Read it. What do I do about this? And then pray and say, God, help me to live it out. All right. Let's finish it out. 
Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Teacher, the one that helps you remember, He's with you as you come to God's Word, as you seek to show your love for God by obeying His commands, as you walk the path that Jesus has for you. You're not alone. And there's some good promises here, man, the best promises. Peace, rejoicing, understanding, love. This is, this is the path that Jesus has for you. In this world, you will have trouble. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There is peace available to the followers of Jesus as he gives his Holy Spirit into our hearts, as he fills us and strengthens us. And the, the question today is, well, where, you know, where have you been in terms of all that Jesus has spoken of? Have you been relying on your strength? Maybe you need a reminder today, there is a helper at your side that Jesus has provided, the Holy Spirit. Have you been trusting in your own understanding? There is a teacher that is available to you. It's the Holy Spirit. Have you had a troubled heart and have you begun just living in that reality? Troubled dissatisfied, discontent, worried. The good news is there is peace available to you today through God's Spirit. Have you been trusting in your opinion? Well, today Jesus says there is a truth that you're going to know about beforehand so that you will believe. For the disciples, it was some information about the coming his coming resurrection. They didn't even understand about crucifixion yet. And he said, I'm going to give you some insight ahead of time so that you're not just leaning on your own opinions, but you're going to have the information you need to help carry you through the storms that are coming. There's good news at the end of this. And Jesus makes that promise and claim to us as well. Come to him as the source of truth, as the one who gives life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's worship him together as we close in prayer. Can we stand in his presence today?